Thank you for reading for us, uh, Dom. My name is uh, Peter Orr. I'm a member of the congregation here. And uh, I think it would be a great help if you could uh, keep that passage open uh, on page 1594 as we look at it together. And uh, why don't we ask God to help us as we read his word. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, uh, the Bible. We thank you for Luke's gospel. We thank you for showing us uh, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to understand more of who he is today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my uh, second most embarrassing moment uh, came when I was living overseas. And I used to get a weekly international newspaper. And one week I happened to read that a leading influential British politician who happened to be a very committed evangelical Christian had been exposed as a Freemason. Now, whatever you think about the Freemasons, the media were using this as a massive opportunity to call his integrity into question and his suitability for public life. I I couldn't believe it. This man, uh, Sir Fred Catherwood, was a very public Christian, and now his integrity was being questioned. It was terribly disappointing. I happened to be speaking to my pastor back home about this, and I asked him how, how this news was being taken. And he was surprised because he hadn't heard anything. What's more, he was a, Fred, a friend of Sir Fred Catherwood. Uh, he told me he would investigate. I checked the paper again. There it was, Sir Fred Catherwood exposed as a Freemason. A few days later, my pastor phoned me and told me that he'd been in contact with Sir Fred Catherwood, who was mortified and was ready to begin legal proceedings against this newspaper, as the story was a complete fabrication. But they just wanted to double-check that uh, I was correct. I assured them, I double-checked, Sir Fred Catherwood exposed as a Freemason. He thanked me and hung up. I then thought, why don't I just get the newspaper and send it to them? So I picked it up, found the article, my eye glanced down, and there it was, Sir Fred Crawford had been exposed as a Freemason. Even though I'd read it multiple times, each time I'd read the name incorrectly. Now, this case of mistaken identity was very embarrassing for me, very embarrassing. My uh, pastor rightly gave me uh, a good telling off. Uh, Thankfully, nothing came of it. But when it comes to Jesus, uh, mistaken identity is disastrous. If we don't make a correct assessment of who Jesus is, the consequences are eternal. And Luke has written his gospel, we saw it right at the beginning of the gospel, uh, to give us certainty of the things we have been taught about Jesus. He wants us to be certain who Jesus really is. And the two accounts that we have in our passage this morning do just that. And as they were read, I wonder if you noticed that they parallel each other. They're both about Jesus being brought to the temple. Uh, One uh, when he's an infant and the second at 12 years later. And they both conclude with a description of Jesus growing in wisdom and grace, verses 40 and and 52. So they both occur in the temple. Uh, In the Old Testament, the temple, apart from anything else, was the place of revelation. And so I think Luke is using these temple incidents to underline Jesus' identity. He wants us to correctly understand who Jesus is. And we see two very simple facts about Jesus. Firstly, that he's the saviour of the world. 
And secondly, that he's the obedient son of God. Two very simple points. And it might be easy to think, especially if we've been Christians for a while, that we know this. This is old news, save your son. Yep, got it. Tell me something I didn't already know. But I think if we look closely at this passage, there are aspects to both these identities that are surprising and not necessarily what we're expecting. So firstly, uh, 22 to 40, Jesus is the savior of the world. Uh, In the first incident, we have Mary and Joseph in obedience to the law of God, uh, taking Jesus to the temple for a purification ritual. And there they encounter two people, first Simeon and then Anna. And Luke shows us that both of these people are reliable sources of information. Uh, I know a 15-year-old boy who uh, will remain nameless, otherwise I will be obligated to pay him $5 for using him as a sermon illustration. Uh, He made me the subject of his history project about Northern Ireland, where I'm from. And, you know, I was was quite flattered, uh, you know, to be considered uh, an expert on a topic until I read the end, the conclusion of his report Uh, where he concluded that I was, and I quote, a biased and unreliable source. Uh, Luke, Luke shows us that Simeon and Anna are trustworthy sources. They are reliable sources of information about Jesus. Witnesses who will increase our certainty. That's why Luke's writing his gospel, to increase our certainty. So verse 25 Uh, There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Can you see he's righteous and devout? We're we're getting his, his character. He is a righteous man. And the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, has revealed information to him. In other words, this is someone we can rely on. Someone who will increase our certainty in understanding who Jesus is. What do we learn from Simeon's testimony? Well, we learn that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Uh, we've, we learn that it's been revealed that he will see the Messiah. And then Simeon praises God and says that he has seen God's salvation and revelation. So verse 29, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Uh, Those words, uh, consolation, Messiah, salvation, revelation, they're all very important Bible words. Uh, That first word consolation uh, or comfort, sometimes translated as comfort, that is a a word that occurs at the, the turning point of Isaiah's prophecy in the Old Testament. Isaiah, the, the book of Isaiah is a very long uh, book, and uh, half of it is about judgment, God's judgment on his people. But then there's a turning point at chapter 40, and uh, this is what Isaiah says, comfort or console, console my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned and that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So Simeon is waiting for this prophecy of Isaiah to be fulfilled. He's waiting for 
uh, the consolation or the comfort of Israel. And Isaiah tells us that that comfort, that consolation for Israel will only happen uh, when when God deals with her sins. Uh, Simeon is waiting to see the nation restored, and that will come about by forgiveness and atonement. And so as he takes Jesus in his arms, he praises God that he has seen God's salvation. Here is the one who will bring comfort to Israel because he will deal with her sins. He will bring salvation to Israel. He will open blind eyes to receive that salvation. And not just for Israel. Uh, Verse 32, he's a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. really is remarkable when you stop and think about it uh, that Simeon says all of this in response to seeing a baby. But that's the point. It's the Holy Spirit who has revealed it to him to make a correct assessment of this baby who is before him. That all the hopes of Israel and the world lie with this little child. Jesus came into the world to rescue the world, to bring comfort by dealing with sin and salvation, and to open blind eyes. And Anna adds to this, again, Luke underlines that Anna is a reliable witness, that we can trust her to tell the truth about Jesus. Verse 36, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She's a a prophet, a prophetess. She's given insight by God himself to make correct assessments. But also, verse 37, she's godly. Verse 37, she never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. What does she tell us about Jesus? Uh, Well, similar to Simeon, verse 38, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, there's that Bible word, redemption, salvation. Uh, What we see in both Simeon and Anna is that if we want to understand Jesus, we need to understand what he came to do, to rescue, to bring salvation, to bring redemption. He came to rescue. He came to save. He came to open blind eyes so that we can trust in him. He came for Israel. He came for the world. He came for you and for me, who by nature are out of relationship with God, who are under God's judgment and who need a savior. Uh, What is the world's greatest need? Uh, Well, we don't have to think very hard to uh, see that there are great needs around us. We think of our nation with uh, the bushfires. Uh, We think about climate issues more widely, poverty, education, justice. Uh, But the testimony of Luke's gospel, the testimony of the Bible, is as important as those needs are. The greatest need that we have is to be restored in our relationship to God. That is the critical and fundamental need of every human being. It's interesting that uh, Jesus still plays an important part in our culture. Uh, People still want to express an opinion on who Jesus is. Whatever else he is, he's not irrelevant. Uh, So a few days ago, I just uh, did a quick Google search of Jesus uh, in the news uh, to see what would come up. And uh, it was fascinating to see how much came up. So, uh, Netflix, you might have heard, have just released a controversial film, The First Temptation of Christ, 
which radically reinterprets Jesus' life and portrays him in a relationship with a man. Joe Rogan argued last week on his podcast that Jesus was not a historical figure, but was a concept created by a communal drug-induced hallucination. Uh, There is a play on at the Carriage Works uh, in Alexandria called Triple Threat. It finishes today, which is, according to its publicity, a taboo-busting and performance art retelling of the life of Jesus Christ. It's fascinating that the world seems so interested in Jesus, and perhaps that's an encouragement for those of us who are Christians uh, to speak to our friends about Jesus, to ask them who who they think he is. Uh, they may be a little bit more interested in Jesus than we assume that they are. But the fact that the world might be interested in Jesus doesn't mean that they have a correct view of him. Whether it's it's Netflix or Joe Rogan, the world wants Jesus to be the Jesus that they want him to be. So again, uh, an Iranian scholar, Hamid Dabashi, uh, published an article a few days ago in which he argued that the figure of Jesus Christ has come to represent many different visions and served various functions throughout time. And whether his figure has a contemporary significance for us in our troubled day and age is the critical question. In other words, Jesus' significance comes from how he speaks to our contemporary situation, not who he was, who he really was but how he speaks to our contemporary situation. But these first witnesses, Simeon and Anna, these reliable witnesses who were there, who were guided by God, remind us that if you want to understand Jesus' significance, you need to understand him as the one who came as the promised Savior. We can't simply reinterpret his life to create the meaning that we want. Now, we need to submit to what God has revealed about Jesus. And what he shows us is that Jesus is a savior. He came as a rescuer. We don't need meaning. We need salvation because we are broken and we are estranged from God. But that means that there's an edge to Jesus coming. If we don't accept his salvation, we remain estranged from him. But we skipped over what Simeon said to Mary in verse 34. The child, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the hearts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Jesus has come to bring salvation, but those who reject him, those who don't receive him as he really is, who refuse to accept the truth, will fall. Because Jesus doesn't just reveal God. He reveals what is in our hearts by how we respond to him. Look at again at how confronting verse 35 is. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. In a real sense, you can tell the essence of a person by how they respond to Jesus. Do they believe that he is a communal acid trip or do they believe that he is the savior of the world? Well, the second account describes another trip to the temple, uh, this time when Jesus is 12 years old. And this is actually the only reliable account we have of Jesus between his infancy 
and uh, the beginning of his ministry. And it's a fascinating description. Uh, Jesus is taken to Jerusalem with his family and a large number of relatives. And uh, when they uh, are on their journey back, uh, they realize that Jesus is missing, that he's lost. Uh, Losing something trivial is annoying. Uh, I once spent months looking for my Medicare card and I eventually find it uh, in my wallet. Uh, Losing a child, even a 12-year-old child, uh, is a terrifying thing for a parent. But uh, even though uh, we get a description of Mary being anxious, the focus here is not so much on Jesus being lost. The focus is on what happens next. Uh, Again, the scene happens in the temple, the place of revelation. And so, again, we're being shown something of of who Jesus is, the real Jesus. Uh, Firstly, we see that he has authority and understanding, even as a young boy, verse 46. After three days, they find him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Then we have the interaction between Jesus and his mother, and Mary rebukes Jesus. Verse 48, Son, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, Mary's anxiety and rebuke seem eminently reasonable, but they actually betray her misunderstanding of who Jesus really is. Verse 49, why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now, as we read this, it's very easy for us to lose the shock of what Jesus is saying. I had to be in my father's house. We're used to referring to Jesus as father, the Lord's prayer, our father in heaven. But actually, for a first century Jew to speak in this way, to speak of God as my father, to refer to the temple as my father's house was shocking, offensive, and uh, blasphemous, really. As one commentator has noted, not even Moses who built the tabernacle or David who wanted to build the temple or Solomon who did build the temple would ever have uh, referred to that place as my father's house. What Jesus is making is a shocking claim to a unique relationship with God. Yes, he he is the human son of Mary and Joseph. Uh, We read at the end of the passage, verse 51, uh, he's obedient to them. Verse 52, like any human being, he grows in wisdom and stature. Uh, He is a human being. But we're also seeing here that Jesus is the divine son of God. God is his father so that he is not just a son of God, but the son of God. But just as we saw in the first account, there's a sting in the tail. Uh, Up to this point in Luke's gospel, uh, Mary and Joseph have been presented as godly, pious Jews. So you might remember chapter 1 when the angel tells Mary that she will give birth to Jesus as a virgin. Uh, Mary's response is a model of Christian faith. Do you remember? She says, I I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Uh, But here in this account, when Jesus responds that he had to be in his father's house, how do Mary and Joseph respond? Well, look at verse 50. But they did not understand what he was trying 
to tell them, what he was saying to them. They did not understand what he was saying to them. Uh, Mary and Joseph, the people who knew Jesus better than anyone else, who'd spent 12 years with him, who'd experienced his miraculous birth, who'd seen him grow, who'd been told by the angel that this, uh, uh, this baby would sit on the throne of his father David. When he tells them that he had to be in his father's house, they don't. They can't understand what he's saying to them. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that strange? Surely if anyone was going to understand Jesus, it would be Mary. And I think the point that Luke is showing us is that to fully and rightly grasp who Jesus is, we need to have our eyes opened by God. We need to have spiritual intervention. And that's something that Luke has already stressed in this passage, the note of revelation. For Simeon, it was revealed to him that he would see the Messiah. Anna is a prophetess. She's given insight by God. These two didn't just work it out naturally. It was revealed to them by God. And that theme of revelation runs throughout the gospel. Uh, You see it later on when Jesus begins to speak to his disciples about his death. And he does it a couple of times. And both times Luke tells us that the disciples did not understand what he meant. It was hidden from them. So they did not grasp it. Right at the end of the gospel, uh, the disciples encounter Jesus after the resurrection, and they're still confused. They just don't know what's going on. They don't understand why he had to die. They don't understand what the resurrection means. And Luke tells us, Luke 23:45, that Jesus opened their minds so that they could understand. Jesus opened their minds so they could understand. Again, just like Mary and Joseph, who, humanly speaking, you'd expect to understand Jesus. The disciples, having spent three years with Jesus, heard him teach, seen the miracles that he performed, they couldn't understand who he really was and why he'd really come. They needed him to open their eyes. I think what Luke is showing us is we can't properly grasp who Jesus is unless he reveals himself to us. Jesus is God's son. He is the son of God. He is God himself. And so we cannot control him. We can't examine him like a scientist examines a specimen and then makes conclusions about what they're seeing. A God that we could work out like that would not really be God. But it's not as if we're not presented with evidence. It's not as if Luke wrote a three-line gospel saying, Jesus is uh, God's son, but really you need uh, your eyes to be open to grasp that, so there's no point in me writing anything. Uh, he, he wrote 24 chapters. Okay? He's given us evidence after evidence. He's packed his gospel full of reliable eyewitness testimony. But to make spiritually correct conclusions about who Jesus is, we need to have our eyes opened. Because left to ourselves, we can't properly grasp his identity. His identity as God's son is too profound for us to simply work out on our own. So does that mean we just uh, passively wait around uh, until uh, Jesus gives us insight? If you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're thinking, well, what's the point? If this is true and I can't really improperly grasp who Jesus is, what's the point? Well, again, look closely. Look at Mary's reaction. She shows us the proper response. Even though she doesn't understand, verse 51, she treasured all these things in her heart. 
She treasured all these things in her heart. Once again, Mary gives us the model for how to respond. This is the right response, to treasure these things in our hearts, to ask God to open our eyes and to fully and properly understand them, to respond to Jesus as he really is. Even as Christians, if we're going to grow in our understanding and appreciation and to properly relate to Jesus more and more, we need the Spirit to open our eyes to gain a proper understanding. Uh, Mistaken identity is embarrassing. Mistaking who Jesus is is spiritually catastrophic. Uh, Here's the testimony of one Christian. I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in his authentication. Furthermore, I am now 73 years old and I have been a practicing Christian since the age of nine and I don't find anything written anywhere else that is as true to life as what I find in the Bible. Uh, That's the testimony of Sir Fred Catherwood, uh, not a compromised politician, but a godly Christian man just before he died. But even better than Sir Fred Catherwood, we have Simeon speaking by the Holy Spirit, who testifies, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the light of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you so much for these accounts that show us so clearly who Jesus is, the Savior who came to rescue, and your obedient Son who came to do your work. Our Father, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we might rightly grasp who Jesus really is and respond in faith and live lives of godly obedience to his glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.